Welcome to another episode of Life Across Borders, a World Relief miniseries. Just 12% of evangelical Christians say their views on immigration are primarily informed by the Bible. In this episode, Matthew Sorens dives into the facts about immigration and explores what the Bible has to say about God's heart and the church's response. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Uh, I'm excited to dive into this topic, and I'm really grateful to be in your earbuds or car speakers or wherever you're tuning in from. You know, as a Christian organization, World Relief's views on immigration issues really start with what's found in the Bible. Uh, I'll start with sharing um, a little bit of my own background with World Relief. I started in the Chicagoland office uh, in the, what we used to call the DuPage office when it was in Wheaton, Illinois, in 2006 in the Legal Services Program, the ILS program. And I, I remember pretty, this was 2006, President Bush was pushing an immigration reform bill. It was actually, I think the first time that World Relief had really weighed in in terms of an advocacy position saying, we, we believe that we need comprehensive immigration reform. Our board took that position. And we found, I don't know if this was true elsewhere in the country, but I think so, certainly in Chicagoland, that was a fairly controversial position that we took, um, weighing in in support of a legalization process for undocumented immigrants, as well as various other changes. And we found that there was not much of a church voice, um, especially from evangelical churches. Um, the Catholic church certainly was more vocal, and I should say Latino evangelicals were quite vocal. Uh, more, a lot of mainline Protestant churches were weighing in, but a lot of the evangelical churches that we partnered with did not have much to say on that push for a comprehensive immigration reform. And we saw that actually as a real um, tragedy because we think that as an organization, we've long felt that biblically, this is an issue that we have, you know, the Bible speaks to. So people who believe in the Bible of any Christian tradition should be speaking into as well. Some kind of upsetting statistics from my perspective, and these are relatively recent. Last year, the Public Religion Research Institute found that 58% of white evangelical Christians believed that we should halt refugee resettlement to the United States. Um, and they use white evangelicals. That's just the survey category they use. Um, non-white evangelicals are more favorable. Um, but even among non-white evangelicals, there's some opposition. And obviously among white evangelicals, it's the majority of white evangelicals who think we should stop refugee resettlement. That for an organization with evangelical roots, that primary, one of our primary ministries in the U.S. is refugee resettlement. That's obviously pretty concerning. Here's another concerning statistic. 59% of white evangelical Christians believe that, quote, immigrants are invading our country and uh, replacing our cultural and ethnic background. Again, that's not all white evangelicals. I want to stick up for the presumably 41%, but that's a majority. And that is a pretty troubling uh, perspective. Maybe even more troubling to me, or and certainly related, this is a slightly older data, but this is from a poll. And this was of all evangelicals, regardless of ethnic background from LifeWay Research, this was a poll that World Relief actually helped design and, and, and recruited. Um, only 12% of evangelical Christians say that their views on issues of immigration, on the arrival of immigrants to their community, are primarily informed by the Bible. In fact, those who said the Bible, and those who said my local church, and those who said the views of national Christian leaders, you add those categories up, and they came up less often among evangelical Christians than the media. Which is troubling for people who would say almost by definition to be an evangelical Christians means that we think we should view everything through the lens of the Bible. And yet that is not the view of most evangelical Christians in the United States. Um, uh, only 21% of evangelical Christians said that they had ever been encouraged by their local church to reach out to the immigrants in their community. 
And again, this polling is of specifically of people who identify as self self-identify as evangelical Christians, but there's been polling on mainline Protestants and Catholics as well that isn't all that much better than this. Uh, the reality is relatively few Christians in the United States think about immigration primarily from a biblical perspective. And often that's because we've not been challenged by our local churches to think about it as such. We've been discipled not by our local churches or by our personal times in, the, in God's word, but by media and social media, which might be even worse because there's no pretense of fact-checking. Um, so we wanted to use this session to really focus this big picture on some of the biblical themes that we think ought to motivate our approach to issues of immigration. Starting with the reality that Jesus himself was a refugee or maybe an asylum seeker. And we'll talk about the distinction there. My wife, Diana, and I were given a nativity set as a wedding gift back when we first got married. And so we put this nativity set out every year at Christmas. And when my daughter Zipporah was probably about three years old, this nativity set just became her favorite toy for the whole month of December. We had read her the, the nativity story in her storybook Bible enough that she knew the story. And when we put that out, she just wanted to play with those little wooden figurines and act out the Christmas story. So, you know, there's uh, angels and Mary and Joseph and they go to Bethlehem and there's animals and there's angels and shepherds and wise men. But Zipporah turned to me one day and she said, dad, our nativity scene is missing someone. We don't have the angry king figurine. And of course, I knew exactly who she was talking about. She is talking about King Herod. And I began to think, I have never seen a nativity scene with an, a King Herod figurine. I would suspect if most of you have nativity scenes, they don't have King Herod in them either. But Herod is actually a pretty important part of the Christmas story. Um, in Matthew chapter two, we read about the wise men, the Magi coming and bowing down before Jesus with their gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then they go off back to their country. And immediately after that, Joseph is warned in a dream that Herod, this paranoid, tyrannical Middle Eastern king, is coming to kill all the little boys in Bethlehem. And Joseph is told to get up in the middle of the night, no time to make a plan, just take Mary and Jesus and escape, crossing the border into Egypt where they would be safe. And in that sense, of course, Jesus was a refugee. Of course, they didn't have a formal legal definition of a refugee at that time. We do now, and we're all probably familiar with that definition. Someone who's fled their country of origin because of a well-founded fear of persecution for specific reasons. Um, or we could say maybe Jesus was an asylum seeker because the text in Matthew 2 doesn't tell us how the government of Egypt responded to the Holy Family. Um, an asylum seeker, of course, is someone who basically claims to be a refugee. They say that they have a credible fear of persecution, but at least under US law, they're considered an asylum seeker until such time as an appropriate governing authority has, the, has made a determination on if indeed their fear is credible and it fits into one of those categories. Well, we don't know that precisely in Jesus's situation. We don't know many things about their journey from the text. We don't know how they were treated when they got to Egypt. Um, it's possible that some people welcomed them. It's also possible that some people were afraid of them, that some people said, how do we know that you're fleeing from Herod and not spies sent by him? Or, you know what, Joseph, we have enough carpenters in this economy without you stealing a job. That's speculation. But what's not speculation is for the roughly 26 million refugees in the world and for tens of millions of other immigrants who have fled their homes or left their homes for other reasons, they have someone in Jesus who can very personally identify with that experience because it was something that Jesus lived as a child. Another core biblical foundation for the work we do with refugees and other immigrants, and frankly, for most of the work we do around the world, is the belief that immigrants, just like every other human being, are made in the image of God. 
And that's a foundational Christian belief. It comes from the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter one, where we're told that God makes both man and woman in his image. And Christians throughout history have understood that to mean that human beings have inherent dignity, that human life is precious and is uniquely worth protecting and saving, regardless of any qualifier, regardless of one's country of origin or ethnicity or legal status or gender or any other characteristic you could think of. If you are a human person, your life is valuable. And that gives us an ethical and a moral obligation as Christians to do everything we reasonably could to protect human life. So if someone is fleeing from the threat of violence or danger, we would want to protect them. But there's another dynamic that I think we need to think about in terms of the image of God. And that is that human beings are made in the image of a creator with that spark of the divine to create and to contribute. And where that's relevant to issues of immigration is often discussions around immigration very quickly go to an economic discussion. What are those people going to cost us? What are they going to take? Now, to be clear, because people are made in the image of God, we are called to love and, and serve people regardless of what they contribute. But the reality is they do contribute because they are made in the image of a creator God. And if you talk to economists, I won't go into the details here. We could do this another time. But the vast majority of economists think that the net economic impact of immigration for the United States is positive, whether you're looking at refugees through their coming through the refugee resettlement program or undocumented immigrants who have no legal status. In fact, 96% of economists surveyed by the Wall Street Journal a few years back said that the net economic impact of illegal immigration in particular was positive for the United States. Looking at refugees, you know, just the fiscal impact. 20 years after arrival, the average refugee adult, according to some economists at Notre Dame, has contributed $21,000 more in uh, taxes at all levels than the combined cost of the initial resettlement assistance they received and any public benefits and other governmental expenditures on their behalf. And that is because precisely immigrants, just like the rest of us, are people made in God's image with that potential to contribute. And we make a mistake whenever we think of them just, and I'm borrowing here from Michael Gerson, who was a speechwriter for President Bush, whenever we think of immigrants just as mouths to feed and forget that they are also hands and feet and brains with the potential to contribute. Another core biblical theme is that uh, God has this particular concern for the vulnerable. And hopefully if you've been around World Relief for any amount of time, you've heard us talk about those groups of people who we find in the Old Testament as uniquely vulnerable. Uh, and it's often three groups of people paired together, the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. Or depending upon your translation of the Bible into English, that word for a foreigner might appear as sojourner, stranger, alien, immigrant. It's the Hebrew word ger, and it appears 92 times in the Old Testament. It's actually one of the most frequent themes that we find in the Old Testament is God's concern for these groups of people who in an agrarian society were likely to be vulnerable. And God says repeatedly, not just to love those people, not just that he loves those people, but then he commands the people of Israel to love them as well. And he establishes laws, legal systems to ensure that the needs of these vulnerable groups of people could be met, including the most basic need for sustenance. So God tells the people of Israel, when you go through your crops, your olives, your wheat, your grapes, go through everything one time and leave what remains for the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. And if you fast forward into the story of Ruth, you see this at work. Ruth comes as a foreigner and a widow into the land of Israel, and she goes to the fields to glean, which if you don't have the background might seem kind of strange, but probably her mother-in-law who is from Israel and knows how things work there and knows God's legal system had given her some advice that this is what you should do because she qualified as both a foreigner and as a widow for that um, protection. Another biblical theme is that we are called to love our neighbors. 
And we find that in both the Old and the New Testament. Um, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, we find it for the fir- in its first instance, Leviticus 19, 18. God tells the people of Israel, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then just a few verses later, in verses 33 and 34, it says, when foreigners reside with you in your land, you shall not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you shall be to you as your native born. You shall love them as yourselves, for you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. So even if we were just working from the Old Testament, we could conclude that that command to love was to be defined broadly. But Jesus leaves no room for doubt on that, because in the Gospels, he's asked, well, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says it is to love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. But the legal scholar who's asking him questions here, and it tells us in Luke 10, he he has a particular motivation. He wants to justify himself. So he has a follow-up question. Who is my neighbor? And of course, he would like the response to be a precise legal definition sufficiently narrow that he could demonstrate that he had indeed loved his neighbor. But Jesus doesn't respond with a precise legal definition. Instead, he tells a story. It's a story of what we think of as the parable of the Good Samaritan. There's this Jewish person uh, robbed, beaten, and left to die on the side of the road to Jericho. And along comes a priest and a Levite, the religious leaders of the time. They walk by on the other side. But then a Samaritan, someone who was ethnically different, someone of a completely different uh, religious tradition that was different and actually despised by most Jewish people at the time, comes along, sees him in need, and has compassion on him and takes him to get help. And I think the obvious takeaway for us as, as Christians is that command to love our neighbors has to be defined broadly. We don't get to narrowly select who we think our neighbor is. Uh, Rick Warren, who's a pastor in California, says we don't. a good Samaritan doesn't stop and ask Uh, the person beaten up on the side of the road, are you legal or illegal? Uh, And not only is that true, but also there's no exception or caveat to that command to love our neighbors. It doesn't say love your neighbors as long as it's completely safe. Uh, Now, if you think about it, it wasn't safe for the Samaritan to stop on the side of a road, which scholars will tell us was a, a road with a reputation as sort of a dangerous road, the sort of place where people got beaten and robbed and left to die. And it may very well be that one of the reasons the priest and the Levite, you know, crossed on behind the other side and kept going was because they were being prudent from a human perspective. You know, if my wife and kids were off on a known dangerous road late at night, I would tell them to, you know, get out of there as quick as he can. Don't put yourself at risk. But the Samaritan who does stop and put himself at risk actually is the model Jesus gives us of neighborly love. And I hear that I think about some of the churches we've partnered with over the years in other parts of the world at World Relief who are welcoming an incredible number of displaced people who have come across the border, usually without going through a thorough vetting process. And they're doing so not because of their confidence that it is safe, but because they were never under the impression that following Jesus was necessarily going to be safe. And I think that's a challenge for those of us who are in the U.S. context, because it turns out, as most of you are well aware, welcoming refugees is incredibly safe. Uh, the refugees go through a very thorough vetting process. Most of you are probably familiar with some details of that process, but Um, You know, since 1980, when President Carter signed the Refugee Act into law, there's been more than 3 million refugees resettled to the United States, and not a single one of them has taken the life of an American citizen in a terrorist attack. That's a pretty impressive record. It's not to say it's a perfect vetting process. We can always be improving it, and we should look to our government to do its job in terms of vetting and keeping out those who would seek to do harm. But my concern is sometimes, as the American church has focused so much on asking whether the government was doing its job that we forgot to do our job, which is ask the question of who is my neighbor and to be the people who are there at the airport to meet that family and show the love of Christ. 
of course, some the you know some might reasonably ask, well, what about an immigrant who didn't come as a refugee, who didn't come through the thorough vetting process of the refugee resettlement process, who might have kind of snuck across the border and the government had no interaction with them at all? Isn't that a risk? You know, we've said at World Relief for a long time that we think it's appropriate to have secure borders. We think our government should know who's coming in and out of the country and have you know, take reasonable precautions to keep out anyone who would seek to do harm. And I don't think that's a controversial position that, you know, the vast majority of Americans would affirm that we should have secure borders. What isn't reasonable is to presume that those who have come unlawfully, who maybe snuck across that border 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, are necessarily a disproportionate threat to American security. And that is because we've got good data on that question. And actually consistently, uh, it turns out that uh, foreign born individuals, whether lawfully present or not, actually commit crime at lower rates than native-born U.S. citizens. And that's not to say you should be afraid of your native-born U.S. citizen neighbors, just to say that it is not rational to be uniquely afraid of those who are immigrants. And to go back to the scriptures, our call is to love our neighbors regardless of whether it's safe. Turns out it's very safe. But even if it wasn't, our call would be to love our neighbors. Another biblical theme that I think is important to bring up, and this is, uh, you know, this doesn't relate to refugee resettlement because refugees come in with legal status, as most of us are well aware, but it does affect some of our other immigrant neighbors is the question of legality. Uh, and there's biblical principles that weigh there, at weight there as well. The one that comes up most often is in Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, uh, Paul writes to the church in Rome that everyone must be subject to the governing authorities. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Uh, it goes on to say that the government does not bear the sword without reason. And a lot of American Christians have understood that to basically mean uh, the law is the law. We just need to follow the law. I think that's probably, an, you know, there's a little bit more nuance to how we should be interpreting that passage, because clearly there are examples in scripture of the laws of the state being unjust. I mean, you can look at the Hebrew midwives who didn't uh, do what, what Pharaoh wanted them to do in killing children, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to worship an idol and went to the fiery furnace. You could argue they remained subject to the governing authorities, but they did not obey an unjust law. But that said, there is this general principle of we don't just have the freedom to dismiss laws that we find inconvenient. Uh, if it's directly in violation of a, a law of God, there may be a situation where civil disobedience is appropriate or even required of a Christian. But in general, we are to respect the law of the state. And so for a lot of Christians, that's where the tension comes up when it comes to immigrants who are not lawfully present, who either cross the border unlawfully or overstayed a temporary visa. A lot of church leaders have asked me, well, should we follow the law or should we show love and kindness to undocumented immigrants? And my response to them is usually yes. And the good news is for those church leaders and for, for those of us who happen to have been born as American citizens, um, there's nothing unlawful about showing compassion to people. There's nothing unlawful about the ministries that World Relief is taking part in with immigrants who are not lawfully present. Um, when we run English classes, you know, I don't think any of our classes ask people about their legal status. But if one of our ESL teachers happens to know their students and know their story and know that they're undocumented, um, they're not violating any law by continuing to teach them English. Our church is not violating any law by serving people communion or teaching them Sunday school or letting them teach Sunday school either, unless there's employment involved. If there's compensation, then there's, there's a legal issue in terms of employment. But in terms of the normal ministry that a church or a ministry or an individual would be engaged in, it's actually not a legal issue. Now, this is a, a harder issue for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are undocumented. And as, uh, as immigrant churches account for the fastest growth in American Christianity today, and especially American evangelicalism, as well as American Catholicism, 
Um, this is actually not a small issue. We have a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ who are in this circumstance. And I think what's important to understand is that they're not here unlawfully because they don't regard the law. In the vast majority of cases, these are people who would be desperate to get right with the law. Uh, many of them have tried in many, many ways to adjust, uh, adjust their legal status. Uh, many of them have been clients of our legal services programs, basically asking, how much money can I pay to get right with the law, to have a green card, to have citizenship? And one thing that I didn't know until I worked in immigrant legal services, I think as like a lot of Americans, I presume that if you, you know, there was some sort of process that you just went and stood in line and filled out the right form and paid the right fee and you left with your green card. And it turns out I was very wrong. And I think a lot of Americans are under that misconception. The reality is uh, the vast majority of the folks who are undocumented in our country today do not currently qualify for legal status. A few of them do, and we should always be encouraging folks to consult with an authorized legal service practitioner to give legal advice. But for the, the there are a few people who would qualify for legal status under the law, but the vast majority simply don't. They don't fit the categories, which to sum up are having a close family sponsor, having an employer sponsor, which is usually for those who are highly skilled, not those uh, you know with a master's degree or something like that. Um, those who are fleeing persecution, so obviously refugee resettlement or showing up to the U.S. border and being granted asylum, or those who win something called the diversity visa lottery, which is an online lottery that you can only enter if you're from particular countries, not including Mexico, India, China, South Korea, Canada, or any of the other countries that the most immigrants come from. And I go through all that because I think it's easy to say, well, those immigrants should go leave the country and come back the legal way, but that's usually not an option to them. And that's where World Relief's position in terms of advocacy has long been that we think we need comprehensive immigration reforms. And, then, and this goes back to 2006 when our board took this position. I usually sum that up as saying it's, yes, it should be hard to immigrate Ill illegally. We believe we should have secure borders, but it also should be easier to immigrate legally. That is to say, um, we should adjust our rather antiquated legal system that makes it impossible for many of the people who we would like to be here to come lawfully. And then for those who are undocumented, there ought to be an earned legalization process. So not a, a free pass that says you broke the law, but the law doesn't matter, but an opportunity to come forward, uh, pay a fine and have the chance to earn permanent legal status and eventually citizenship. And that fine makes it a, uh, we've described this with our partners at the Evangelical Immigration Table as a restitution-based immigration reform. That's not a new idea. It's part of the proposal that President Obama put forward in 2013, that President Bush put forward in 2006. Uh, but we found it's really helpful with people in churches to help distinguish this from either an amnesty, which is just, you know, sort of pretending the law, there was no violation of law, or a mass deportation policy, which would say that these people are here unlawfully, let's get rid of them or of simply the status quo, which we also think is unacceptable um, for a lot of our vulnerable neighbors. It's a way for people to uh, pay a fine, which in our experience, most experience, most folks would be eager to pay if it meant the opportunity to have permanent legal status and eventually citizenship. That as we talk about those who are um, refugees or asylum seekers who have professed a fear of persecution, if you go back to that formal legal definition, it includes people who have fled persecution on account of their religion. And I think a lot of the people in our church partners have missed the reality that many of the people fleeing religious persecution and coming to the United States as refugees or as asylum seekers are actually persecuted Christians. They're people who have fled their countries because of their faith in Jesus. But if I asked what was the top country of origin for refugee resettlement in the last decade, many of you would know it's Burma. And uh, about 70% of the Burmese refugees resettled into the United States have been Christians. Uh, most of those are 
uh, people who are also ethnic minorities, but their religious minority status as Christians is a significant factor in why they've been persecuted in by the Burmese regime. There are other persecuted religious minorities, even in Burma, the, the Muslim, mostly Muslim uh, Rohingya and others as well. But um, I think it's helpful for churches to know that many refugees are persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. And in, in Matthew 25, Jesus actually speaks to the least of these, my brothers and sisters. He says, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. And the disciples are confused. They say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or sick, stranger in prison? And Jesus says, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it unto me. So there's this sense in which in welcoming those persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ, we're actually welcoming Jesus himself. And, you know, I think that it's been a helpful observation to help our, our church-based audiences to understand that when we shut down refugee resettlement at a national level, it harms refugees of all religious backgrounds, including those who are persecuted for their Christian faith. The last thing, uh, last point would be, of course, if I think if, frankly, if all refugees were Christians and all Christians in the United States knew that, this would probably not be as controversial. But the reality is a lot of Christians in the United States are afraid of people of other religious traditions whom they might see as some sort of a threat. Uh, in my view, that is a very misguided view, both because we have lots of experience with refugees of Muslim backgrounds and Hindu backgrounds and other backgrounds, and there's no reason to think that they're disproportionately a threat. Um, there's been, like Christian refugees, they've been carefully vetted. But also, it's actually an opportunity for the church um, to make disciples of all nations and um, to give an answer to everyone who asks us for the reason for the hope that is within us, as First Peter 3 says. And I, I know this can be a sensitive question. Um, to be really clear, we don't at World Relief do proselytism. I think you're all familiar with that. Proselytism is any effort to sort of um, pressure people or use power dynamics to uh, push people to change their faith. Um, we, we don't want to be involved in that in any way. But we do believe in evangelism correctly understood, which is a is an open invitation to the gospel. And again, very often that's going to happen in response to questions. You know, I lived in a neighborhood for about 10 years where most of my neighbors were refugees from, again, lots of Burmese Christians, but also Somali Muslims and, um, you know, people of other religious backgrounds. And often, you know, without me even bringing it up, sometimes people would presume I'm a Christian and they'd have questions. What is it that you believe about Jesus? Or, you know, if you're celebrating Christmas, what's the deal with the fat guy in the red suit? Is that an important part of your theology? Well, no, but, you know, I can tell you what Christians believe about Christmas and what we believe about the incarnation of God becoming man. And we have lots of opportunities to, to speak to uh, our faith. Um, again, never in a coercive way, but in an, in, in an invitational way. And I think most of our offices are familiar with people who, in the context of religious freedom that we have in the United States, have made the decision in the United States to follow Jesus. I'll close with this quote. Actually, two quotes. This is from Ronald Reagan. And I like to close with this because I think it's kind of inspirational. Uh, this is Reagan's farewell address to the nation, 1989. He said this. I've thought a bit of the shining city upon a hill. In my mind, it was a tall, proud city built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds, living in harmony and peace. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors. And the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. I like that quote because, I mean, I, regardless of your views on President Reagan, I think that describes the sort of policy that I would actually love to see the United States have, once again, towards refugees and immigrants. But I actually have a problem with President Reagan on this quote as well. 
And that is that he actually elsewhere in the speech credits this phrase, a shining city upon a hill to John Winthrop, um, who was a, an early uh, Puritan colonist to the United States. And of course, that's not the origin of that phrase. The origin of the phrase, a city on a hill, those of us who know our Bibles, is from Matthew chapter five. And it wasn't addressed to the United States of America uh, or any other nation state. It was Jesus to his disciples, to the earliest form of the church. Jesus said this, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who's in heaven. There are millions of people around the world, fellow believers and those who, who've never heard the name of Jesus alike, who are looking at how people who profess to be Christians respond to issues of refugees and migration, whether that is a response characterized by apathy or hostility or fear or love and welcome and advocacy. And they're making determinations about who the Jesus we claim to follow is. And my prayer, regardless of how our government responds, and we'll get into why we think it's so vital that our government respond in some better ways than it has been doing over the past few years. But regardless of what our government does, the church's role is to be that light of the world. It is to respond in such a Christ-like way to vulnerable people that people would see our good deeds and praise our Father who is in heaven. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Life Across Borders. To learn more about World Relief and get involved, visit www.worldrelief.org. And join us on social media. We are at World Relief on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.